My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Movie podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, as we continue on in the book of Genesis. Today, we'll be in chapters 22 and 23, covering some very important material here. And we're going to be starting with verses uh, 1 through 8. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, we've got a lot to unpack in these verses here, but we have to start at the beginning. Let's start with the phrase, God tested. The Hebrew word here is nisah which derives from the root word nasa, nasa, however the heck you pronounce it, pronounce it. Some people, it's even written as naka. The word itself means to test, to prove, to put to the test, and sometimes to tempt, amongst others. But what are we to do with this information? You know, first off, Uh, I speak a lot to me at this moment in time. Let us all be grateful that there are smarter people than me who actually understand Hebrew and don't just read something off a website and go, or from one of the reference books I've been gifted. uh, Thanks, Mom, again for that one. That actually know what they're talking about, that actually understand the words that are there. And then, you know, idiots like me can then read and benefit from their knowledge so I can instruct other people. So let's give a prayer up to them for all the hard work they've done and thank yous and accolades and all that. But as we thank them for being able to help us out there, we need to understand something important before we go further. As one of my Hebrew professors always says, when it comes to understanding other languages, just in general, like even English, context may be king, but usage is queen. Now, what does that mean? Uh, basically, it's like, hey, like, typically, word in context, what does it mean? Like, that is the definition of the word. But the usage part comes in, well, how do people actually utilize that word? How do they use it? In our more modern usage of the word tempt, it means to us to solicit to do evil. It's kind of like a stricter definition there. But Hebrews, specific, uh, primarily when they used a word that I mentioned earlier, meant it as testing. For example, in Deuteronomy 6.16, in the KJV, we see the word translated this way, ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Now, in most other translations, uh, 
you will see the word translated as test or something else to that effect. And we'll get to that later on as to why they do that. However, as we've just seen in the KJV, the word tempt is used. Why the disparity? Well, easy enough. It's basically because words evolve over time. The word tempt that we have in English language comes from Middle English, which borrowed it from Old French, if I remember correctly, which stole the word from Latin because I have to make fun of the French, wherein it can mean what we've established before, but it can also mean to provoke, which we don't really think of when it comes to temptation because of our modern understanding of the word, as that word has drifted over time to lose some of the meanings it had earlier. And just kind of an idea to get you like, what this was common around then, I'm just not making this up. You know, the KJV itself was finalized in 1611, where this usage of the word was extremely common. And even 100 years later, when Alexander Pope translates something like the, Ili the Iliad into English in the years 1715 through 1720, he wrote one of these verses, just picked it out at random, nor tempt the wrath of heaven's avenging sire as a way to show how the Greeks and the Iliad might provoke the gods into action based on their decision. Now, there's a lot more in there. Like, if you've never read the Odyssey or the Iliad, like, what are you doing in your life? You can pronounce it five different ways, like I probably just did in those sentences earlier. But there's so much fun. But we see in the cultural context of the time, tempt, not primarily, but one of its meanings was to provoke. This was to provoke a response from Abraham. So what was the point of this whole linguistics lesson? If you didn't, haven't tuned me out right now, if you, your eyes haven't gone cross-eyed, you know, you're drooling out of your mouth or anything, like, I, I get it. Like, as much as I love writing, I don't love studying the English language or anything like that. It's not my forte, but it is healthy to do so in order to understand what you're doing. So like I said, what was the point? God doesn't tempt people in the modern sense of the word and that he solicits them to do evil. That is anathema to him. It is everything he is not. God cannot promote evil. He allows evil to remain in a sinful world, but he himself does not cause it. He works around it until the days when evil will be no more. There will be no evil in heaven. God cannot sin or encourage others to sin because if he did, then he is not perfect and therefore is not worthy of being God. And only a sinless being can define what sin is as it is something that they are incapable of performing, which makes it antithetical to their existence. Now, once again, that modern usage of the word temptation or to tempt, recall back to what my professor said. And that means we no longer consider the other definitions from a more modern context, which is why most modern translators of scripture choose other words so as to not confuse modern readers who haven't studied the word. So if you were, some of you do read KJV. I know that. I read it every now and then, but I'm glad I don't have to do it all the time. But when you see verses like that being translated that way, you go, but wait, how can God tempt someone? God, God can't do that. It's because our usage of the word versus the past's usage of the word are two very different things sometimes. 
But if you need more proof, let us consult the good book by going to James 1, 13 through 15, where we see in the NKJV that let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, I forgot to write down the Greek word there, but the Greek word there also carries a lot of the connotations that we do for the Hebrew word, and one of them is to lead into sin, to uh, provide bring people to that point of sinning by introducing the ideas that they themselves choose. But here we see, even with that definition, that humans aren't tempted by God in that way. God does not lead people to evil, but we are led by our own desires that when presented with an opportunity to give into those desires, whether this was done through regular means or supernatural means, we are the ones culpable for giving in. Now, as far as all the metaphysics work of, you know, how demons work with you, are they in contact with people? You know, do they, is there a whisper in your ear every now and then that doesn't come from you? It says, hey, you should totally give in to that sin. Or is it always you? We can have that debate. I think there's a supernatural side of it, but I also don't want to give us uh, a get out of jail free card here and say, well, oh, well, Satan was just tempting me. Well, sure, he does. And his demons do. But... Who gave into it? Being tempted with one thing is one thing. Giving into it causes it to become a sin. But on to the actual contents of the story, which is why most of you came here. <laughs> Abraham has been asked to do the impossible, sacrifice his one and only son to God after decades of waiting for him. For this to be done, it required a burnt offering, wherein the contents of that offering were meant to be fully consumed by the fire as much as naturally possible. And what is Abraham's response to all this? Well, he wakes up early. Then he leaves with that hesitation on a three-day journey. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but in my doubt, in my unbelief, I don't know if that would be my first response to this. Now, from a more modern interpretation, it's like, hey, the purposes of the story are done. You know, they're foreshadowing what will be Jesus on the cross. We'll get to that later on. There is no need for this event to happen again. So there are plenty of people out there who have used this as an excuse. Well, God told me I needed to kill my kid and he was going to bless the world. Or, you know, God told me I needed to kill my spouse or I need to, you know, set fire to this building or I had to blow up that abortion clinic because God told me to. Now, let me guarantee you. That's not what God is going to say. That's not who he is, because you're missing the point of the story if you think he actually wants you to engage in sin to please him, not how it's done. Now, on to whether or not God would ever desire human sacrifices from his followers. These are unfortunately very common, a, a very common occurrence in ancient times and unfortunately even today to some extent, in some, but not all, let me stress that, not all pagan rituals. By sending a human who every culture instinctively knows has more value than animals, that is a truth that is not debatable. Humans have more value than animals. Every culture knows that. These cultures were intending to show their devotion to their deities of choice, and sometimes to get rid of the riffraff, 
depending on which culture we're in here, uh, whether these cultures were Aztecs, Canaanites, members of the Shang dynasty, or several others that exist out there. This is a human condition that has happened multiple times over throughout history. God directly condemns this practice multiple times over in the Bible with just a small sampling being Leviticus 20, verses 2 through 5, Psalm 106, 37 through 41, and Ezekiel 23, 36 through 40. There are plenty more where that came from, but just to give you an idea of where some of those would be, there you go, if you're taking notes. And let me know if you're taking notes. I'd be really happy to hear that. God abhors these sacrifices and condemns them in Scripture. So why make Abraham do this? It goes back to that word test. He's provoking him, testing him to have him prove his faith. But Christian, why would God do that? It sounds evil. Well, that sounds evil to you because you're not him. He can do whatever he wants as long as it's not sin. This is not sin. This is showing him where Abraham's heart is at and proving to Abraham where his own heart is at. Now, sometimes we may be aware, you know, I'm doing pretty good, like I'm following God. But like to be tested proves it for sure. That temptation that comes our way, that in the past has always crippled us, that we've always made the wrong choice on. And this time we make the right choice. Well, who allowed that to happen? Who allowed that opportunity to come up? Not because he desired us to be tempted into sin, but so that we would be provoked to make the test. And we pass the test. And when we don't, once again, God didn't cause us to sin. We do that. We need to repent. We need to ask forgiveness. We need to be better the next time, knowing we're human being, knowing we're fallible. So in all this, Abraham does what God commands him and goes out to perform the sacrifice with Isaac and two of his own men who he leaves behind, telling them that both he and Isaac would return. Notice what is Abraham's intention? Abraham's intention is to follow what God says and sacrifice his son to him. But what does he tell the men? Both of them will return. And we'll get into some of his reasoning later on. But notice how he appears to believe Isaac won't die. He even lets Isaac know that God will provide the lamb, which he will in the form of the ram in a bit, since they have none of their own with, the, with them for the sacrifice. Abraham, for all his faults, has learned God will provide. That is one of the huge themes of this chapter alone. God will provide for his people, those who love him. And we'll continue on from there into verses 9 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham, following through with the plan, prepares Isaac for the slaughter, putting his most prized child, the light of his eyes, up for the kill. But before the blow can be struck, God intervenes by sending the angel of the Lord to stop this from happening. But why was the ceremony needed in the first place? We said it before. It's to showcase Abraham's faith in God. This is also not only formative for him, but it's also formative for Isaac. This is something that easily could be misinterpreted. But Isaac needs to see what it takes, what true devotion to God is. Abraham needs to realize how far he should go in his love for God. And we see this in Hebrews, where which praises Abraham in the Hall of Faith chapter. That's typically the grand term people give to it. Where in excuse me, chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, where it says in the NIV, by faith, Abraham, whom God test, excuse me, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had been embraced the, the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. What we see here is Abraham's true character. God has for decades promised him a child and said that he'll make a mighty nation out of him. No, it's not Ishmael. It is Isaac. He specifically says it is Isaac through which this will be done. God's promise came true. Isaac is born. But now I'm telling you to give him up. Would that same God who promised a child then tell him before these things have been fulfilled, take that away from him? Is God just like the gods of the Canaanites, uh, who he lives around and demand through sacrifices to Molech and Baal and so many other heathen, terrible gods that they should sacrifice their children to him and then the crops will grow and then I'll be bring peace to the land or I'll give you victory in war or what have you? Is that who God is? Is he just another ripoff and just another loser God who can only do things if you give up something like that? No. And here's the proof. Abraham has seen God in work. Never before has he demanded this. And so as we get clarification from other scripture, which is one of the great things about this whole book, is that sometimes, not all the time as much as I would like it, we do get, okay, this is what they were thinking in that moment. And the writer of Hebrews has presented it to us. This is what was going through Abraham's mind. Even if Abraham were to give the killing blow to his son, he believed God would bring him back to life and fulfill the promises he had made. And before that could even happen, God responded to him. And that's amazing to see that faith, to see someone able to think for himself and reason these things, that this is going to be the end result. That can only really happen from someone who's experienced as much as Abraham has from the very long life that he will lead. We also see here that just as Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, so too, as we read through scripture, for those of us who've been with Luke and Romans, you've seen, God was willing and able to deliver and do the same when the time came for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. No one intervened for him. No ram, 
showed up to be sacrificed in his place. No one else was worthy upon the earth to do that. God didn't lift him up into heaven and prevent him from dying as you know the Muslims believe. Like, no, Jesus Christ was murdered on the cross for us. Nothing took his place. Instead, he took our place where we rightfully deserve to have been, to have suffered through that agony, to have had the weight of our sins forced upon us to show us just how evil and sinful and terrible we are, just so he could make that play of sacrifice, cover our sins and give the opportunity for people to say yes, knowing that most would say no. And yet still he made that sacrifice play. By offering Jesus at that time, God was showing his true devotion and love to us and that he allowed Jesus as a representative of the one in the three in one of the Trinity to die on our behalf. God dies on the cross in the form of Jesus. Sacrifices were made to cover sins. That is their purpose. That is why we will see as we get eventually into Exodus and Leviticus and so on and so forth, why God put such an emphasis on it. Because something needs to take the place, something needs to die for my sins to be covered. But through Jesus, not only are they covered, they're erased in God's eyes if we say yes to him. That's what sacrifices are for. And only the perfect sacrifice, a being who had never once sinned, never will sin, never has sinned, could cover and erase those sins. Sins are covered, but they're only truly erased when we say yes to him. But even with all of this, there still needed to be a sacrifice. So God lovingly provides a ram to take the place of Isaac because Jesus hasn't died yet. Sacrifices as a system are still in place. So taking the place of someone who didn't deserve this to happen to them, much like Jesus didn't deserve to happen to, th- to, have had to, happen to him later on, God delivers the ram. And then Abraham, rightfully understanding some of what has happened here, obviously he doesn't know the totality of history. He praises God by naming the place Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, to show the extent of what has occurred there that day. God is our Jehovah Jireh, who provides us all that we need from him. He did it. For Abraham and Isaac here, he can do it for you. He can do it for me. Once again, don't take the wrong lesson from this. Don't expect this exact same scenario to come out in life later on. The purpose is done. The purpose was to foreshadow what is to come, as we will talk about in a bit as we finish off this part of the chapter uh, in verses 15 through 24. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and I have not withheld your son, your only son. I will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my Voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Booz his brother, Camuel the father of Aram, uh, Chesed 
Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makkah. Continuing at the sacrifice scene. The angel of the Lord had arrived to speak on behalf of God. Here we see, if you interpret his appearance as a pre-incarnate Christ, which I do, that in this moment in time, Jesus is present at the sacrifice which foreshadows his fate on the cross. We shouldn't look past this idly. This is 2,000 years removed from when that happens. But Jesus appears anyways to show his resolve and what he must do later on for our sake, where, we, where he takes the place of the ram while we, humanity, in the form of Isaac, get to live, but at such a great cost. Like, you know, it's one thing to tell Jesus, and this is once again assuming that the angel of the Lord is Jesus, which I think there's plenty of evidence in the text to say yes to that. But some scholars do debate this, so I don't want to like just blanket say, you have to think the same way I do. But there's there's so much here for him. Like, could you imagine being told, hey, you're going to die for the sake of humanity, but not only that, I'm going to make you live it out without it actually happening the first time around. Just so you, yeah, you can prepare for it. It's not what God says here to Jesus, but, you know, it's, it's, it's mind-numbing, right? Why would someone do that? It's going to be bad enough when it actually happens. Why would I ever want to put myself in a, in a state of mind where I can see that happening in front of me, knowing what's going to happen to me later on? Well, it's because he loves us. It's because he loved Abraham, he loved Isaac, he loved you, and he loved me. He came of his own free will to this location to speak on behalf of God, just as Jesus will do around whenever the heck, 6 BC all the way to 33 AD, that ifish amount of time there. That's tremendous to me, to see that devotion, to see that love, which I certainly don't deserve, and I know you don't either, and yet he does it anyway, knowing what's at stake knowing our souls are at stake. He relives for a moment there what will actually happen to him. He experiences it, I should say. We also see that the angel of the Lord then speaks as God's mouthpiece, showing Abraham everything that was at stake if Abraham didn't follow through with God's commands to sacrifice Isaac. But because he did, God blesses him and promises to the bless his descendants as well, through which the world is blessed. A lot is riding on Abraham's decision to follow through with what God told him to do here. If he hadn't, goodness gracious, how long would it have taken for God to have made the next person who would have been worthy of this? Uh, so uh, there was no such person who was worthy of it. And the next person who could have decided, it could, could have waited thousands of years. He could have waited till right now if Abraham had never made the right decisions here. But because he did, we are blessed. And not only that, Abraham is also blessed with good news that his part of the family is prospering and that he's finally got his real heir. God is blessing him with the truth of the promise of what is going to become of his descendants. But so too are his relatives blessed, who, by the way, don't seem to have the same relationship with God that Abraham does. 
chances are they didn't believe in it, in God like Abraham did. But God still blessed and also provided them with children, one of whom, Rebecca, will become more relevant two chapters from now. And because, because Abraham has done what he's supposed to do, people around him are blessed. That's an important part of our job. We don't just do the things that we do for the sake of doing them. We do this so that we are blessed and the people around us are blessed in ways we couldn't possibly imagine. And that's what's delivered here, not only for Abraham's side of the family, but the other side. And we'll go from there to chapter 23 through verses 1 through 9. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. There are a couple things here. One thing is I realized I forgot to write this down. So that's on me. So I'll focus on that as much as I can remember before time goes on. Um, if you're a student of history, much like the Philistines earlier, you'll be wondering, Hittites? I mean, sure, it's possible they're there. But what's going on? Well, Hittites in the Old Testament refers to that people group that lived in what we would call Turkey today, but also to a specific group of Canaanites that lives in the land of Israel. Now, there's some debate on whether or not these were left over from when the Canaanites, excuse me, the Hittites controlled the land and they kind of intermingled and married and became Canaanites themselves, or if they just took the name from the Hittites, because as was often the case, uh, the Hittite empire and the Egyptian empire would fight one another and uh, Canaan, Palestine, that whole area was unfortunately in the middle of most of their conflicts. So a lot of battles were fought, a lot of wars were fought in this land between those two warring empires. So sometimes the Hittites would be in control of the region, sometimes the Egyptians would be. But remember from earlier, the Egyptians really didn't like the idea of offshore colonies because that meant if you died, you didn't die in Egypt, which is where you were actually supposed to be, you know, dead in uh, due to their religious beliefs. So Egypt would have like garrisons and stuff there. Sometimes in Israel, uh, Hittites would do the same thing. It was constantly being fought over. So there's this debate about what this is. I think this is the, the Canaanite tribe that may have a relation to the Hittites or may not. It may just be two different people groups who had the same name. You know, linguistics is funny like that. Who knows? But as I don't have the rest of that written down, I won't go any further into speculation. So I apologize for that. But... Let us focus on what we should have focused on first before my memory went away, and that is the death of Sarah. After years of marital bliss and marital strife, Sarah dies in the land promised to her family. 
Now, as we focused on before, Sarah's story is one of ups and downs. But, I mean, so too is anyone else's if we had the same insight into their lives as we do with hers. God help me if there's ever someone is ever inspired by God to write scripture based on my life. <laughs> I... I don't want that life. I'll be perfectly honest with you. You know, for all the good that I've done, I also know all the evil that I've done. I wouldn't want someone to look at that. But if he so chose to do so, he's able to do so. And the same applies to you as much as it applies to me. Chances are it's not going to happen. But imagine yourself in that scenario. We, thousands of years removed, see a lot of Sarah's life she probably wouldn't have wanted to see written down. In the same way, we see that for a lot of people. And that's one of the reasons why people say, scholars say, you can trust scripture. It's because we take the good with the bad. We don't, just don't focus on the successes. That's why we look at scripture. We see the disciples not believing in Jesus until after the resurrection and them scattering and fleeing and wondering what they should do until Jesus encourages them when he comes back. Here we see Sarah, though. We have seen her act faithfully to God and bless his name. And we've also seen her reject him at times, all in the same lifetime. Yet, ultimately, she is his. And as a special side note, Sarah's age is mentioned specifically here, and I'm fairly certain this is the only time a woman's age comes up upon her death in the Bible. There may be something else I'm forgetting about, but I think this is done specifically to showcase just how important she is to the world and that from her, the world could be saved through her son and God's blessings that created the Jews and eventually led to the birth of Christ who brings peace to the world. Sarah is our spiritual mother for those of us in the Christian faith who are not Jewish. Without her without our spiritual father Abraham in that sense we do not exist how does that feel because we see a person there a person with flaws a person who's also done really good things well guess what we're no better or worse than her so we we need to have heroes that's a good thing I encourage you to have heroes but we also need to recognize they're only people David is just a man David is probably my favorite character in the Bible but David is also a very terrible human being at times so I have to take the good with the bad. And with Sarah, I take the good with the bad. And from her, the good definitely outweighs the bad. Notice here also how Abraham's anguish and despair at losing a loved one isn't portrayed negatively because it isn't bad to do so. We are encouraged to mourn. We are encouraged to feel loss in Scripture. Abraham isn't made fun of by God for saying, huh, you lost your life? What kind of loser are you? Because that's antithetical to who God is. He knows we live in a sin-filled world where death happens to be a part of it. He doesn't tell us to man up and get over it. He does tell us to mourn and then move on, but he doesn't tell us to stop. You can't feel that. You need to shape up. You get over it. No, that has no place in scripture. It has no place in the church. And I have seen that handled far too many times poorly than I have successfully. Not to say there haven't been successes because there have been many times where I have been comforted by people after losing someone and family has been comforted by someone after losing someone by people in the church. That has been done well. But I have also seen the exact opposite. And that infuriates me because it's based on false premises and legalistic notions of what men and women should be doing with their emotions. 
that has no place in the Word of God. It has no place in the church. Whether we lose a grandparent, parent, sibling, cousin, friend, coworker, or what have you, someone that has some relation to you, you enjoyed their company to the point where you lost someone and it hurts, that matters. To feel an absence with the loss of a loved one is natural. Never let someone tell you your grief is wrong, but know that grief can lead into sin when it consumes your life. It is possible for grief, which doesn't feel good, but is good because it helps us process that love we had for that person. It is possible for that thing that could be used for good to be then used for evil, to remain in that grief when God, that's not where he wants us to be. He wants us to feel that loss. He wants us to understand that that person meant something to us, but we then can't let that grief control us. Abraham didn't let it consume and control him, but he did utilize that grief to express his true feelings and thoughts. Grief works for you. You don't work for grief. And from there also we see Abraham in the midst of this grieving, where he could easily be taken advantage of here, he takes the time to respond with understanding, vulnerability, and kindness to his Canaanite neighbors about his situation. God has promised him his land, this land. He does not have to be nice to these people. He shouldn't have to, but something good comes out of this. They having witnessed his deeds and the blessings that God has given him, see how he is favored by God and name him a prince of God to show how special he is. And that even they, while unbelieving, can see the wonders that God has done in Abraham's life, even in the midst of losing a spouse. Have you ever been in the funeral where you knew someone there was lost and it was the the funeral of a righteous person, someone that sought after God. They were still human. They still screwed up, but they were still seeking after God. And that finally seeing those eyes kind of open and they understand just how important it was for that person to follow God. And it's important for them to do the same. I've seen the beginnings of that. Um, I haven't been able to confirm it from some of those people I've met at funerals before, but I saw the spark. And that's something that happens here. Like uh, chances are none of these Hittite men come to faith. But what they did notice was who Abraham was, how he acted, and how God favored him. And they make a note of it. So in the midst of this, Abraham asks to pay a fair price for some land in a cave where he can bury his own, which was a common practice at the time, given that the region has many caves. It's a useful place to uh, bury your dead, to keep them away from society where, you know, People, as long as people have been alive and death has been around us, we have noticed it is not good to be around dead bodies. This was a useful place to put them where disease wouldn't spread and anything could happen. And we'll move on from there to verses 10 through 20. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. 
Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the, sh- the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, Ephron is a bit of an interesting figure here. Now, some commentators say that he's taking advantage of a grieving widower, but it appears to me that he was perfectly willing to offer the cave to Abraham for free until Abraham insisted on purchasing it. Or, uh, what is even more likely than that, that this was just uh, a cultural expectation that started with the seeker, you know, slash buyer, asking for less than it's worth, and then the owner agreeing to it temporarily so that the second offer would be the real one. It's kind of a, it's like, oh, I'll give this to you, but like, no, 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 I know you actually have to make money off of this, so here's what I'm going to offer you, or, or here's what I'm going to tell you you owe me. I think that's what it is. I don't think he's trying to take advantage of Abraham here, even though it, it appears you know 400 shekels is kind of hard to quantify from a modern perspective. You know whether this is using the Jewish system, uh, a system of how the money was measured, or uh, that's what it was at a time, which obviously, if that, uh, hundreds of years are apart, the systems of economics change. So, uh, what was it actually worth? Hard to tell, but it appears to be far beyond what the land was worth showing not only just how wealthy Abraham was that this was a pittance for him to offer, but also how generous he was that he agrees to this demand. That's no chump change. Also here, importantly, most importantly, this plays an immense role in Abraham's legal right to the land and for his descendants, who will use this cave later on to bury their own dead. For decades, he had roamed from place to place without owning land. Now, He had a foothold in the land promised to him, and his descendants had done so, excuse me, uh, promised to him and his descendants, and he had done so through legal means, even though God's commands override man's laws and statutes. God had promised him the land. You know what that means? The land is Abraham's. He doesn't have to buy any of it. It's his. Doesn't matter what the current world government says at the time, or the local government, what have you. God is in control. It is his to give, not ours. But seeking peace, seeking to love his neighbor, Abraham doesn't lord that over them, and he buys it, setting up what will eventually be the entire land that is going to be his descendants who are in control of it. And with that, we're done with Genesis 22 and 23. Thank you guys for listening. Please get a chance to leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice just to help us out there with the ratings. If you're interested in my own fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwriters.com excuse me, starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. You can contact me at thatnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. Now allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.
Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code Let Nothing Move You, all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code Let Nothing Move You. All right, see ya.